0: Well, last week we started a new series here at Rooftop called uh, The Gospel According Pixar. And during this series we are considering some of our favorite Pixar movies through the lens of faith, through the eyes of scripture. Uh, For 25 years, Pixar has been making award-winning movies, heart-rending movies. And as Christians who live in the world but are not of the world, we want to think about these movies and decide if there's anything Christian about them. Uh, Do they give us anything to think about? Do they give us anything to to learn from? Just because something isn't necessarily labeled Christian uh, doesn't mean that uh, we don't have anything to learn from it. Now, I know this is a different kind of series. It might not be your cup of tea, but as I hopefully gently reminded you last week, not everything that we do here is for you. Uh, I also tried to make the case last week that, that Christians shouldn't be afraid of engaging the world like this. Even in church, God is alive and well in the world. We can meet him in surprising places. And the story of God's love for the world, it's the original story from which every other story is derived. So many of our favorite books and movies and and stories and tales uh, borrow from the uber story of Christianity. We talked about this last week in Toy Story. If I can say this, I enjoyed the sermon last week, and if, if you weren't here, and, and you haven't been here for the series, and you want to sort of get a, an, an understanding of what, why we're doing what we're doing, uh, I'd, I'd give it a listen. Now this morning, we're going to keep rolling by considering another Pixar classic, Finding Nemo. Next week, uh, Pastor Skyler is going to be talking to us about Coco, but Finding Nemo. Uh, hopefully, you've seen Fine and Nemo, came out in 2003. The movie is Pixar's fifth full-length animated movie. It tells the story of a guilt-stricken clownfish father named Marlin. And at the beginning of the film, Marlin loses his wife and all his baby fish eggs in a vicious and traumatizing barracuda attack, all eggs except one. Following his wife's wishes, Marlin names his remaining fish kid, Nemo, and promises never to let anything happen to him. Uh, Nemo grows up feeling suffocated by his overprotective father, however. And in an act of defiance, he swims out to sea to prove to his dad that he can do what he wants. But Nemo is captured by a scuba diving dentist who keeps Nemo in a fish tank filled with crazy fish characters known as the Tank Gang. Meanwhile, Marlin sets out on an epic journey to find his son with the help of a blue tang fish named Dory, who quite famously has acute short-term memory loss. Along the way, Marlin confronts his fears of the ocean. He learns to let go, even as he is eventually reunited with his son. Sorry, spoiler alert. He may or may not be reunited with his son. It may or may not be one of those tragic, terrible Pixar endings. Now, Finding Nemo was a box office smash, making more money for Pixar and Disney than any Pixar movie except Toy Story 3. It won all kinds of awards. It was universally loved by critics, by audiences alike. Critics loved the color, they loved the ocean setting, they loved the character... Arcs. Uh, Audiences loved the humor, the character gags, the 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 heartwarming story, the sequel finding Dory, which is actually pretty good. I should point out that the movie wasn't all good though. It inspired a mini ecological disaster. As fans around the world went immediately to pet stores to buy orange clownfish as pets. Uh, Clownfish aren't actually bred in captivity, they have to be harvested from the wild. And as a result of this spike in demand, entire populations of clownfish were decimated in the ocean. So there's that. Ecological disasters aside, though, I personally loved the movie. I watched it again uh, just this past week. And uh, just remember watching it with my kids when they were little. Uh, by this time, I'm just a sappy old dad. And I cried like three times watching the movie this week. Uh, I was also reminded of how much I loved the music. I don't know about you, but I'm just a, a soundtrack fan. Any other soundtrack fans yeah. here? I love movie sound. It's like my favorite genre of, of music, soundtracks. It, Thomas Newman's uh, soundtrack for Finding Nemo, it's just, it's magic. It makes you feel like you're floating in the East Australian current somewhere. Now, so part of the purpose of this series is is to teach us to admire what is praiseworthy in God's world. As Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything, if anything, anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Anything, whatever, includes Pixar. And there is much to admire in Finding Nemo. It is a beautiful creation, and there is a lot to think about. Like what? Well, what's the movie about? The movie's not about fish. The movie's not about memory loss. The movie is actually about parenting. Uh, the writer and the director, Andrew Stanton, uh, remembered visiting his kids in uh, the aquarium one day uh, and, and, and seeing clownfish. At the aquarium. And he thought, moment of inspiration, he thought how great it would be to write a movie about a clownfish who can't tell jokes. <laughs> if you know the movie, Marlon has a hard time telling jokes. Uh, but Stanton also wrote the movie as a relatively young dad who felt the pressure to protect his young kids from danger, but was having a hard time finding the line between loving your children and smothering your children. And this is Marlin's challenge. I mean, Nemo is his only remaining child. And, and Nemo is a disabled child, too. He, ha- he has a lucky fin. And he isn't a very good swimmer. So Marlin constantly feels the need to coddle and protect his son. And Nemo is embarrassed by this, he even tells his dad he hates him for it. Marlin's overprotection is what drives Nemo away. Only as Marlin learns to let go and trust his son is their relationship restored. O- only as he gives Nemo his freedom does Nemo really thrive. Anybody who's a parent can relate to this. It is tough to find the right balance between protecting your kids and giving them their freedom, freedom to make mistakes, even freedom to get hurt. Even the best parents among us have a hard time striking that balance. In fact, because this is such an important thought, uh, I thought it would be actually helpful to discuss for a moment. If you think about it, parents raise their children along a continuum I'm going to call it the Freedom and Supervision Parenting Scale. This is my contribution to the world of of parenting psychology. I even developed the graphic. So if you think about it, parents parent their children along a a continuum, what we call the Freedom and Supervision Parenting Scale. Uh, Some choose to give their children more freedom. Some choose to give their children more supervision. Uh, now, of course, I think there's a balance here in the middle. We're going to call it the zone of optimal parental balance, you know, where there's a, a perfect combination of freedom for children and supervision for children. Now, that optimal parenting position that's different based on child, based on age, based on circumstances, but, but this is where parents are able to offer reasonable protections for their children, but also give them freedom to, to explore, freedom to live, even freedom to get hurt. Now that optimal parental balance has shifted over the years, though. I remember growing up, for example, in the 70s and the 80s. Anybody remember growing up in the 70s and the 80s? I would, yeah, those were the days, man. I would disappear for 10 hours at a time on my bike, riding around the neighborhood. My, I didn't have a cell phone, nobody had cell phones. My parents didn't know where I was. They just knew that I'd be home for dinner. My mom and dad had like taught me how to take care of myself. That's just kind of how we did it. They didn't know where I was. They just knew I'd be home on time. These days, we don't do it that way. Even me, even me, I would never let my daughter just ride around the neighborhood for 10 hours at a time. In fact, if I see my daughter out the window in the backyard, I run panicked out the back door. I'm like, Miranda, get back on the porch. (laughs) Don't you know what sort of vicious people are out there in the world, in our backyard? (laughs) ready to kill you, not, not to mention the, the vicious squirrels. Oh, man, that'll just rip your throat out. I've seen it happen. Things have changed. Now, a lot of that over the, the decades, a lot of that has to do with uh, cultural anxiety, the media. I mean, we're all just so afraid these days of things that will, like, never happen. Now, I'm not going to judge parents uh, for how they decide to parent their children these days. Uh, That's something Christians do too much of, judging one another. We're actually quite good at it. Um, And to be sure, the Bible doesn't prescribe a perfect way to parent. Uh, What the Bible says is very general, and it can be applied to any different type of parenting style. As the book of Proverbs says, we should train a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not turn from it. That's actually quite general. We should train a child the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not go from, from it. The idea here is that when children are young, we should be very, very intentional about teaching them where to go, how to live, how to live righteously, so that when they grow older, they can be released to do so. And my point is that this can be done in different ways by giving our kids more freedom or more supervision. But we just have to be intentional about it. Whether we give our kids more freedom or more supervision, we've got to be intentional about training up our children in godliness and righteousness. Now, having said that, I do want to say that there are extremes here that must be absolutely avoided. On the extreme of freedom, for example, is the extreme of neglect. And on the extreme of supervision is controlling or over-sheltering. There are no circumstances in which neglecting or over sheltering your children is good for them. By neglecting your children, you, you fail to equip them in the ways of life and faith. By over sheltering your children, you fail to equip them to deal with the realities of the world. And if I if I may, I see many parents, even parents here at rooftop, making both kinds of mistakes. I see parents neglecting their children. We all do. I mean, I see parents, for example, letting their children have unfiltered access to the world through technology and cell phones uh, with no limits, which is terrifying. Uh, Many of us don't want to monitor our kids' cell phone use because it's just exhausting. Trust me, I've been there. Uh, We can't keep up with them. They know how to do it better than we do. Also, we don't want to have to deal with our own hypocrisy. One of the reasons that many of our children are addicted to technology is because we ourselves are addicted to technology. And it's easier just to uh, ignore the problem than it is to have to deal with our own addiction. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a kid up here who's like amening me at every moment. (laughs) Preach it, Pastor Matt. (laughs) But on a more important level than technology, I see parents neglect their children's spiritual needs all the time. Uh, We saw this a lot during COVID, and and we're still seeing it. I mean, because of COVID, children's ministry here at Rooftop was really rough. I mean, we had to close our classes. Uh, Our Rooftop's team provided all sorts of resources to help parents, you know, keep teaching their children about Jesus. But most of those resources went unused. And I doubt, I doubt it's because parents were at home coming up with their own materials. One of the tragic realities of COVID is that because of our I'll say it, spiritual neglect. Our children, the next generation of Christians, will be less devoted to Jesus and to church and to fellowship because we failed to show them how to stay faithful to Jesus during a pandemic. I don't mean to make anybody feel bad, but I'm a pastor and I have to tell you what I see. I mean, we Christians have got to realize, we have got to realize this, we have got to realize that we are always, always, One generation removed from spiritual extinction. One generation away from spiritual extinction. It's why God was very clear with the Israelite children when he pulled them out of the wilderness or out of, the, out of the, uh, the slavery of Egypt. It's why God was very clear with his children about the importance of teaching their children about him. As he says in Deuteronomy, he says, Hear, O Israel, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And here's the first thing to do. Impress them on your children. It is our responsibility to teach our children about God and his will for their lives. On the flip side, though, on the flip side, there's two extremes here. I see parents make the other mistake, too. I see many parents shelter their children unhealthfully in an effort to keep the world out of their home. You know, we shut the doors, we shut the windows, we turn off the TV, turn off the Internet, limit our kids' social relationships. But while I agree that the world is scary, I mean, it is, I get it, And that we need to protect the kids from it. I I actually don't think the world is as scary as we're afraid that it is. And I actually think kids can make better decisions than we want to believe they can. But instead of helping them deal with the world, we shield it from them. We shield them from it. But that doesn't work on another level either. You see, the only thing scarier, the only thing scarier than sin in the world is sin in the human heart. You cannot shelter children from the sin that is inside of them. As Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The world can be a scary place, and we have to equip our kids to live in it, but it's no scarier than what is already inside of them. And we have to equip them to deal with that too. So, at the very least, I think Finding Nemo gives the parents among us a chance to think more deeply about how we're doing and ask ourselves some tough questions about our parenting choices. And I want to let you know that we are here to help, too. If you're struggling, if you're struggling to find the sweet spot of supervision and freedom, don't get defensive this morning. Don't get upset. Don't tell yourself, go home, I'm a terrible parent. Don't write me an angry email telling me you felt judged this morning. Do something else. Ask for help. Ask for help. We have lots of amazing parents here at Rooftop who would love to talk down with you and t- uh, sit down with you and, and talk through your choices with you. So but in addition to being a good excuse to evaluate our parenting styles, I think finding Nemo can serve another purpose too. Something that might even be more important. You see, I think Finding Nemo serves as a theological analogy, which has something very important to teach us about God. By theological analogy, that's what I mean. It has something to say to us about who God is. The movie is an accidental parable for us about who God is as our father. You see, the movie is about the difficulty of parenting, but it's also about the radical extent to which one father goes to rescue his child. Marlon realizes halfway through the movie that he's the one who drove Nemo away, and instead of trusting Nemo, he coddled him. He wasn't parenting him out of love, he was parenting him out of fear. It was his fear of the ocean that pushed Nemo away from him into the ocean. And in order to rescue him, he has to confront his fear of the ocean, which he does in heroic form. That's what the movie is really all about. The persistent love of a father for his lost son. And in this way, we get a beautiful picture of something we see in the Bible. Because this is the story of Scripture. Finding Nemo is just borrowing from Scripture, if even accidentally, one of the key plot points of the oldest story around. The persistent, persevering, courageous, and rescuing love of God, who is our Father. I mean, think about it. The God of the Bible is not just a god. When he introduced himself to the children of Israel, he didn't just introduce himself as a God. He introduced himself as a certain role. I am your father. To be a father means that he created them, he provided for them, he protects them. That's what fathers do. And when Jesus the Son appears on earth, he tells us that the best way to relate to God is as our father. Our father who is in heaven, he tells us to pray. And Jesus assures us that God knows us as a father and will treat us as his children. As he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He insists. And not only is the God of the Bible our father, but he is the perfect kind of dad. He strikes the perfect balance between freedom and supervision. What do I mean? Well, let's talk about the freedom that God gives his kids. He gives us plenty of space to bike around the neighborhood, swim around the ocean. Even though he is very intentional about teaching the children of Israel his ways, he is very intentional about offering them plenty of supervision. He also lets them get into all kinds of situations. Idolatry, immorality, paganism. Why? Why would God give them the opportunity to get involved in so many terrible things because he wants them to enjoy the gift of their freedom. And he doesn't always come rescuing them, swooping in to save them either. Why not? Because he wants them to learn responsibility. It's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe you know the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 15. In the story... A son comes to his father and asks for all his inheritance so that he can go go live the high life for a while. He doesn't wait till his father has died. That's normally how that works, right? Uh, Dad, I would like all my money now. Uh, What does the father not say? He doesn't say, no. (laughs) Doesn't say, okay, but with some conditions. What does the father do? He gives him the money. And now at this point, I'm thinking, you stupid dad. What do you think he's going to do with it? You know he's going to blow it. You're neglecting your boy. Whatever happens next is on you. That's what I'm thinking. Remember me. You know, Randy, get back on the patio. I'm a controlling dad. But I'm more controlling than God is. God gives it to him. The son takes the money. Goes to a far country, blows it all. What a surprise. On wine and women. He ends up eating with the pigs. And even then, even then, what does the father not do? Father doesn't go find him, go help him get up on his feet. Father doesn't file a missing persons report. Now I know I'm taking some liberties with the story. (laughs) The father lets him live his life. Nearly starving to death, Marlin the Clownfish would be horrified as we are. I mean, the amount of freedom that the father gives the son here is bothersome. And I know the son has grown and the son is not eight years old, you know, and I know the parallel only goes so far. But regardless, this is still what good and generous parents do, even at great risk. They give their children freedom to live their lives. I remember many years ago, for example, uh, my son was learning how to use his wheelchair. He was far more confident in it than he should have been. Uh, Michelle and I, his mom and I, were were, were terrified that he was going to have an accident or like veer into traffic. And we were like running behind him in his wheelchair, like ready to like steer him straight or like save him or like throw the brakes on. We're just running behind him and kind of beside him. And he would get so mad. He would yell at us, back off. I hate you. I never said that, but he was probably thinking it. I hate you. Back off. And we had to. We had to. It was agonizing backing off. It was agonizing, but we knew we needed to. It was so hard giving him the freedom to learn his limits, even though we knew he was going to get hurt. God can restrain himself where we can't. And God does. God lets us live our lives. But that doesn't mean it doesn't tear him up. I mean, I can only imagine what the father in the story was doing while the son was away from home. I mean, what do you think the father was doing? You think he was like reclining in his easy chair just watching ESPN? You think he was bumming around the shop making furniture? What do you think he was doing? What would you be doing? You'd be pacing around the living room. Oh my gosh oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I mean, we, he had to be feeling something. What does he do? What does he do in the story when he's like looking out the window and his son comes over the hill? What does he do? That's what happens in the story. After many months, his son realizes he made a mistake, decides to come back home in humility. What does the father do when he sees his son home? What does he not do? Does he play it cool? Hey, hey. Welcome back. <laughs> Bedroom's still there. What does he say? He doesn't say, uh, Man, I didn't want to say this, but I told you so. <laughs> no, what does he do? Jesus says, while, uh, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. While he was still a long way off, that he was looking. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion with him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, kissed him, told everyone, my son was dead, is alive again, he was lost, but is found, and he throws him a party. So, even though God gives us freedom to live our lives, and even though he gives us freedom to learn responsibility, he agonizes over it, and he rejoices when we come running back to him. He rejoices, he runs out to meet us, just because your heavenly father has given you freedom to live your life and make terrible mistakes, as many of us are doing, that does not mean he's not sitting on the doorstep, waiting anxiously for us to come home and ready to throw us a party when we do. So I do want to add an important caveat here before we close. You know as well as I do that sometimes um, we get ourselves into situations from which there is no escape. Or as Dory might say, there's no escape. (laughs) Sorry, you have to see the movie. (laughs) No escape, no escape. Sometimes uh, we get trapped in fish tanks we can't get out of. And when that happens, uh, sometimes our father cannot restrain himself from coming to our aid. I mean, when the Israelites were enslaved down in Egypt, did God tell them, well, you got yourself into this. When the woman caught in adultery was dragged by the Pharisees before them to be stoned, did Jesus look to her and say, well, young lady, that was stupid. Guess you had this coming. When Jesus himself was tortured, executed, and buried, did God the Father sit back and think, I wonder how my son is going to handle this one. Let's see how he handles death. Huh. Let's watch. And when we, his children, fell into the trap of sin and death and gave ourselves over to the power of the devil, did God wave goodbye and say, Good luck finding your way home. It's a big ocean with sharks and jellyfish and scuba divers. You can do it. You just need to believe in yourself. Just keep swimming. Did God say that to us when we were caught in the net of our sin? No. Of course not. There are some situations that we can't escape from. Sin and death is one of them. That's our situation. We are stuck. We are stuck in the fish tank of sin and death. We are condemned to suffer eternal punishment because we rebelled against God on our own. There is no escape from that. But our Father in heaven loves us too much to let us suffer in those circumstances. So what did he do? What did our Father do? He came after us. He came to earth as a man to teach us how to live and die on the cross for our sins. He crossed an ocean to come find us, bring us home. That's the love of the Father. He loves us enough to give us freedom to live our lives and to accept the consequences of our bad decisions. But he also loves us enough to come rescue us when we are up against forces too big for us to overcome. At great cost, at great risk, he loves us that much. He loves us enough to come to earth as a man, to come into our tank as a fish and die for us. The love of God is that wide, it is that deep. It is the subject of our faith, It is the source of our being. As the Apostle Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, How high, how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. The love of the Father is that expansive. The love of the Father is that legendary. The story of the Father's love has been shared and shared and shared and shared across generations, across continents, across oceans. We're still here this morning talking about that love because someone shared it with us. In fact, there's a scene in Finding Nemo that I really, really like. I actually want to close with it. It's a scene in which Marlon recounts the story to a group of baby sea turtles of everything that he's gone through to get to his son. The sea turtles are enraptured. They're enraptured by the story of this persistent father who would do anything to rescue his boy. That story is so inspiring, it is so surprising, that it spreads It spreads through the ocean. One sea creature tells the story to another and then to another and then to another until all the creatures of the ocean are telling the story of this father who crosses the sea to find his son. Finally, the story reaches Nemo. Nemo can't believe it. Nemo thought his dad was a wimp. But he comes to believe it. He comes to believe that his dad is on his way. Why? Why? Because every kid, every fish, every human being wants to believe that their father loves them enough to not give up on them. We have such a father. We have such a father who would cross an ocean to rescue us from sin and death. We have a father who would. We have a father who did. We have a father who will. If you are stuck in your sin, if you need to be saved from your guilt, if you've got problems too big to handle, ask your father for help. Send out your SOS. No matter how far he has to swim, he will come find you and bring you home.